In the German capital of Berlin, the built-up area consisting of five to six-story buildings is a little over 6,000 acres. This area has an average population density of roughly 140 persons per acre and a total population of nearly 850,000 residents. According to the Washington State Office of Financial Management, Seattle's estimated population as of April 1, 2022 was 762,000 residents. Seattle's land area is 53,620 acres, nearly nine times larger than this small segment of Berlin. Just 3% of Berlin's land area has a population greater than all of Seattle. Seattle is not alone. This is an issue that affects most cities in the U.S., as well as Canada. North American cities do not have a missing middle problem. They have a missing mid-rise problem, a problem that is reflected in the depths of our housing crises and in the inability to meet climate goals. Today, on the Livable Low Carbon City podcast, we will be talking missing mid-rise. Welcome to the Livable Low Carbon City podcast, the show about the interconnectedness of low carbon living, decarbonized buildings, and quality of life. I am your host, Michael Eliason, architect and founder of Large Lab. Let's get to it. The problem with the missing middle. What is missing middle housing? Well, the urban planning and architecture studio Opticos defines missing middle housing as, quote, a range of multi-unit or clustered housing types compatible in scale with detached single-family homes that help meet the growing demand for walkable urban living, end quote. In short, missing middle housing is small-scale housing, generally three stories or less, that is intended to be compatible with detached single-family homes. There are a couple of problems with this. The largest issue is that too much of our cities are dedicated to single-family zoning. I think we need to also look at the economics of missing middle housing. In cities with a massive housing crisis, a massive shortage of homes, the economics of missing middle housing really doesn't work out. We are well beyond the point of fourplexes and single-family zones being utilized as a means of generating more affordable housing. That juncture was in the late 1970s, and at that time, the city of Seattle actually looked at legalizing missing-middle affordable housing in Seattle's uh, single-family zone landscape. Of course, that was a process that homeowners, neighborhood groups rose up to prevent from happening. Per Zillow, the median single-family home value in Seattle exceeds a million dollars. It's expected to keep increasing over the next few years. This means that the land costs alone for a fourplex would be almost $250,000. So Seattle's restrictive land use policy and delay in addressing the shortage due to zoning has only exacerbated the housing crisis. It's not that I'm opposed to missing middle housing. Missing middle housing is great. And Actually, I think it's completely compatible with four, six, even seven-story buildings if it's designed properly. I wholly support city and state action around legalizing missing middle housing. I don't and have never believed there should be any single-family zoning, and I believe that we should have federal zoning levels like Germany or Japan, where even the lowest category allows for small-scale housing projects like duplexes, like small apartments, even commercial uses for daily living, and in some cases, even non-polluting industrial That's actually a topic we should talk about in a future episode. The issue with the focus on the missing middle is that it largely ignores, A, how the economics of missing middle housing in cities with systemic housing shortages no longer work because land and construction prices are just too high, and B, that the overwhelming land area in most of our cities is devoted to detached houses. 
the scale and speed with which we need to be adding housing in U.S. cities, especially affordable housing, will be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to achieve with this outsized focus on small-scale homes. It also doesn't address the lack of walkability or accessibility in most of these neighborhoods, nor does it address the egregious policy of limiting affordable and social housing to the most toxic streets. The reality is our housing crises, and yes, that is plural, we don't just have one housing crisis, are so vast and so broad that we need to be thinking bigger and more comprehensively about how to rethink housing, cities, access to open space, mobility, and so forth. This is why I'm a huge proponent of eco-districts. Missing middle forms of housing should primarily be focused in suburban areas, or at best, the outskirts of major cities. It really just shouldn't be the predominant land area in cities where the median home is approaching or surpassed a million dollars. Another critique I have of missing middle housing is that it is still largely auto-centric. So even if you replace single-family homes in largely unwalkable neighborhoods or barely walkable neighborhoods with two and three, four-unit multiplexes, it's not really going to move the city on improving walkability. It's not really going to move the needle on meeting climate goals. These are still car-centric neighborhoods. If anything, loosening the zoning off of arterials for small-scale housing without really broadening where affordable housing, social housing is legal, it still relegates all of that affordable housing, social housing to these loud, polluted, dangerous arterials. This is a paradigm of U.S. cities that I think we need to be drastically altering, especially given all of the negative health effects that come with living on these kinds of roads. Increased risk for cancer, dementia, heart disease, and things of that nature. Another aspect to all of this is that it really locks in low-rise zoning for a large percentage of the city. So if you think about urban morphology, how cities are changing. If we really take a block of single family homes and 50% of that block were to be redeveloped into duplexes and triplexes, we're doing a lot of work, but we're not really increasing the density much. It's not really taking a more holistic aspect and then looking kind of in further timelines in 30 years or 40 years, the region grows by a million people. Are those neighborhoods locked off from ever having to change again? Are we going to have this perpetual cycle in U.S. cities where we don't really change the zoning for most of the city and then we change it dramatically? We open up that zoning nozzle. I call it the garden hose theory of zoning, right? We focus all of our new housing onto these narrow slivers of land, these arterials, these highways are really the only places that density is legal. And so what that does is it drives up the land values because we also drive up the FARs on that to accommodate all of these people. I would also say that the focus on missing middle housing, it's really similar to the conversations around ADUs. Everyone kind of viewed it as this approach to allowing more housing in more of the city without really changing much. It really gives the appearance of doing something on the housing crisis, but we're just nibbling around the edges. We're not taking any of these issues seriously and making the dramatic changes that would be necessary to meet our housing goals, to meet our climate goals, to make a more livable, walkable, and climate resilient city. So I guess I should take a break here and talk about what I mean when I say mid-rise buildings. There's no set definition for mid-rise, but we have definition for a high-rise. So in the International Building Code, the IBC, the building regulations that affect most states in the U.S., a high-rise is when there's a 
floor of a building that is above 75 feet. What's interesting to me is that this is actually relatively close to the definition of a high rise in German regulations, which is where the topmost floor is at least 22 meters above grade. So it's not necessarily based on the number of floors. There also aren't necessarily definitions for low-rise buildings, although personally I would say a low-rise building is three stories or less, and that is kind of in line with the same scale of building in the missing middle diagram. So I would typically say that the number of floors in a mid-rise building is somewhere between four and eight. Historically, this also seems to be the scale of building, again, the point access block that is relatively common in, in the older parts of older cities, generally maxing out somewhere between five and eight stories, and then potentially having inhabited attics. So that is inhabited area below the roof. There could be an additional floor or two in some jurisdictions, although most US jurisdictions don't allow that kind of bonus. Again, this ends up being a building with an elevator. And I think this is an important distinction because generally missing middle housing isn't going to be accessible or adaptable. Uh, except maybe perhaps a floor at grade, because at three stories, there's no requirement for an elevator. However, if you're looking at mid-rise buildings, four to eight floors, you are looking at buildings that have an elevator, and so they are accessible or adaptable. One of the reasons I prefer using the term mid-rise is that it is kind of a little bit diaphanous, right? Like it's a little bit vague in the number of floors. So maybe a mid-rise building on the outskirts, you know, four, five, six floors, it makes sense. It's fine. A little bit closer into the core of the city, five, six, eight floors, uh, it's the same thing. There's that kind of that scale that you, you don't really have. Like low-rise is very distinct, right? Three stories or below. Another aspect that I really like about mid-rise buildings is that they're not necessarily urban in nature. In fact, if you go to the suburbs of older cities in the U.S. as well as Europe, Asia, South America, there are mid-rise buildings in the suburbs surrounding the kind of core city. The city of Berlin has this really excellent diagram that shows the number of floors a building has, the average population density per hectare, the number of hectares for buildings of that size. And what's really interesting is that the peak of that in terms of population density is pretty much dead even between buildings that are five to six stories and then buildings that are higher than 10. And so buildings at that five to six story range in terms of zoning, in terms of building code, in terms of population density, walkability, there are kind of all of these points that mesh together. And so you get this kind of optimized land use, you know, so we can look at this diagram from the city of Berlin, buildings that are one to two stories, have a population density that is one seventh, five to six story buildings. Buildings that are two to three stories have a population density that is less than a third of five to six story buildings. It's not really until you hit that four to eight story range that the population density really jumps up dramatically. And this is kind of that inflection point too, where there are enough residents in an area to support new schools or to support grocery stores, to support better public infrastructure, such as, you know, high capacity transit. So in my mind, like the mid-rise building is kind of the super fruit of urbanism. Conversely, it's extremely rare in most U.S. cities. We have very little land in the city of Seattle that is dedicated to mid-rise buildings. And where we do locate it is not ideal. It's not a place that a family wants to raise their children. It's not the kind of place that people really want to hang out on. You know, it's generally loud, polluted, dangerous arterials. And so we really need to think about the zoning dial and how broad that zoning dial goes. So if we're only moving our dense buildings half a block depth off of a major road, then we're really leaving a lot of walkability and potential housing units off of the table. And so I think in order to meet our climate goals, to meet the needs of the housing crisis, we really need to start to rethink, you know, kind of the depth, the broadness of, of where we put that mid-rise housing. In 
order to address our housing crisis, I think we need to be zoning for a very broad area for mid-rise zoning. In Seattle and many other West Coast cities, you know, mid-rise buildings are limited to an arterial, a highway, and then almost immediately falling away to low-rise or single-family zoning. It's not an urban planning approach that really allows for walkability. When you focus all of the density on one single street, this does a number of things. One, it focuses all of the commercial spaces on this. And so, you know, as a resident or as a visitor or even as a worker, you're having to cross really dangerous street multiple times a day just to do the most basic of chores. When I lived in Freiburg, almost the entire core of the Altstadt, the old part of the city, uh, was a pedestrian zone. Most of it was in the range of three to six stories with inhabited attics. You could do basically all of your errands in a quick manner without having to interact with cars. You could get there quickly by bike, by tram, by bus, or foot. The city of Freiburg builds itself as a city of short distances. One of the ways that it does that is that it zones broadly. That is, it's not focusing density on these hyper-narrow slivers of land in the city. And so when we take an approach that that allows for more housing in more area, it increases the walkability of that area. Think about any major city you've been to outside of the U.S. Paris, Berlin, Amsterdam, right? Like the multifamily buildings, the mid-rise buildings, they just go on for blocks and blocks and blocks. And so... You know, this does a number of things. One is it it focuses social housing, affordable housing off of kind of commercial arterials. It allows those kind of residences to be, you know, dense multifamily areas, but in residential neighborhoods that are not inundated by traffic noise to the same degree. So it's a lot more humane and quieter at night. You know, I think doing zoning more broadly would do a number of things. One, it would allow for cities to meet their climate goals, I think, on a quicker timeline, especially if they're looking at redeveloping land around transit stations for kind of car light eco districts. You know, this also allows for some really interesting approaches on the design and construction side. So you could have a systems-based approach to developing buildings Uh, Similar to Intelligent City. Intelligent City is a startup in Vancouver. They are focused on these really elegant mass timber mid-rise buildings aiming to meet passive house. There'll be a mix of unit sizes and types. And so there'll be more land area, right, for these kinds of innovative companies to try out things in. A systems-based approach, I think, is much more common in other countries. It's not quite so common in the U.S., although in the last couple of years, there are a number of groups that have taken this on to varying levels of success. You know, another area that could see some really interesting kind of cohesion on this is it allows the building code and the zoning code to sort of fix some of those misalignments. So so Mass Timber was adopted into the latest iteration of the International Building Code. The six to eight stories, I think, is really an optimal sweet spot for Mass Timber buildings. It kind of hits the number of things. After eight stories, you generally have to start adding more layers of gypsum board or other means to fire-proof your Mass Timber building. There's this transition in most commercial buildings where above Five stories, you're going to have to add a floor of concrete to deal with a fire separation. If you're using cross-laminated timber, that's a lot easier to do and potentially less expensive to do. And so there's this really nice sweet spot for mass timber where it's going to be exposed. It's going to be, I think, more cost-effective. And in some of the modeling that we've done, it definitely looks that way. And so you're getting all of the benefits of this. But you need a zoning plan that really kind of aligns with this. And so if we were looking at doing a broader kind of district almost of these six to eight story buildings, it's going to be denser. There's going to be a lot more options in terms of housing. There's going to be a lot more social housing. 
It's definitely going to be more walkable. There'll be more spaces for restaurants or cafes, startups, more customers for grocery stores. I think we really need to start thinking about aligning more of our zoning codes with kind of innovations in construction tech. Missing middle doesn't really do that. Like missing middle, you could systematize it. You could have kind of the same house that you plant everywhere. And there are a number of developers that are actually doing this to varying success in Germany and Switzerland. But again, it's it's not scaling. Those projects aren't really hitting the levels of affordability that we need. And so we need to kind of adjust that misalignment. How could cities develop broader, denser districts today? Well, there are a number of really elegant brownfield eco-district projects underway in the EU, many of them very car light. One example that I think is a, a standout is the Merveda in the Dutch city of Utrecht. They're kind of pioneering turning this brownfield into a 6,000 home, virtually car-free district. It's a 60-acre parcel in the city. They're basically going to be keeping a handful of buildings, and those buildings can be repurposed for uh, marketplace or affordable workspaces, artist studios, cultural venues, things of that nature. The district is really a testing ground for healthy, sustainable, climate-proof neighborhood. It'll be prioritizing pedestrians. The spine of this district will have a car-free pedestrian zone. It's really about prioritizing cycling and livability. Much of the land is going to be dedicated to parks and green space. Schools are integrated into the community, sports facilities, commercial spaces, retails, and there's this really elegant kind of diversity of housing as well. There's cooperatives, there's social housing, there's market rate housing, uh, there's middle-class housing, there's a CPO, which is kind of the Dutch version of a Baugruppe, where residents come together and self-develop their own property, and all of this in between. And, and these will all be focused on the same block. All of this mix of housing is going to be focused on each block, and so you're going to get this really great economic and social mixing at kind of this very fine-grained level. In the U.S., we kind of would do the opposite. We wouldn't have much open space. Everything would still be car-centric. Think of any TOD project in the U.S. There might be a little tiny park. All of the buildings would be double-loaded corridors. There wouldn't be much semi-private courtyard space. And there wouldn't be this wild mix of unit types, uh, unit sizes, or development. And so it'd mostly be market-rate housing and maybe a couple of projects of uh, affordable or social housing. But we really don't get that, that healthy mix, right? Part of it is our urban planning processes in the U.S. are just horrendous. We don't use the urban planning process to develop these better neighborhoods. Okay, to summarize, missing middle is fine, but the economics of it in cities with an extensive housing shortage, they don't really pencil. I also think that we can be thinking much broader and more holistically and how we plan cities. This also means that we need to move away from the autocentricity of missing middle housing in order to meet our climate goals. And in order to do this, we have to address our housing crisis by zoning very broadly for mid-rise buildings, much as in the same grain as Paris, Berlin, or newer districts like Merveda in Utrecht, Sonnenviertel in Vienna. And just to close, I will note that none of this is new. We know that cities that are compact and walkable have lower carbon footprints. An interesting footnote to this, a recent report by the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research showed that proper land management and the construction of compact walkable cities built with mid-rise mass timber buildings, hey, this sound familiar? Could reduce carbon emissions by up to 100 gigatons through 2100. So this is a significant carbon savings. Inside Climate News ran a report summarizing this and then reached out for, uh, for my thoughts on climate impact research paper. And I'll leave you with my thoughts from this. One of the ways to mitigate carbon at scale is to be incredibly resource efficient when designing buildings. 
Limiting sprawl can also play a significant role. The IPCC's Working Group 3 report on climate mitigation highlighted that compact walkable cities are some of the most effective means of mitigating carbon emissions. Mid-rise timber cities, such as those studied in this report, with resource-efficient and sustainably sourced timber do exactly that. In sum, mid-rise mass timber cities are a proven climate solution, so let's get to it. Thanks to our listeners for joining us on the Livable Low Carbon City podcast. We'll be back with another episode soon to broaden the discourse and highlight how we can co-create a low-carbon urban future together. If you'd like to know more about what Larch Lab is doing, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter. I'll add the link to the episode notes. Thank you.